Welcome back. David Penn here. Welcome you again to the Professor Penn podcast. You know, after watching Ray Kroc on the founder, I'm, I'm looking for new hooks because we got to get people engaged. So I'm going to say this is the place where people go to learn a little bit about the history of this country as it relates to our current political environment. And uh, as always, I want to thank Free People Radio uh, for providing this platform. Uh, Target.com, our sponsor. Many more sponsors are in the pipeline. Target's number one. All your tire needs, everything you need for tires, and you fund the movement. It's a win-win. PrecinctStrategy.com, where you go for a tutorial about how to get involved in the game of politics. And what could be more important than that in these days and times? Today we're going to continue with my uh, conversation. You know, I'm, I'm trying to have a conversation with you about uh, the roots of the Republican Party, the roots of the Democrat Party, uh, they, and how that relates to our, our current impasse. And when I say an impasse, well, we're at an impasse. Uh, we're $32 trillion in debt. We're on the verge of nuclear war. We hate each other. Uh, we hate we hate ourselves. I, w- I was listening to uh, Please Call Me Crazy, and uh, Royce White had an interesting fact I hadn't heard before that uh, the suicide rate among young white men is three times the death rate from violence among young black men. I'd never heard that before. That's staggering. And uh, it occurs to me that we hate each other because we hate ourselves. So. Why do we hate ourselves, and how do we move away from hatred to love so that we can live lives of well-being, of meaning, and of contribution to our American uh, experiment? Uh, So today we're going to talk about an issue that's of uh, great importance today, which is the collapse of our border and the um, unfettered entry of millions of uh, lots of different labels for these people. And if you're one of them watching, I wonder what I wonder what these people would like us to call them: illegal immigrants, migrants. You know, all these terms are rather disparaging. And these folks are coming from all over the world, and they're coming for reasons. And uh, they they find themselves here in the United States in the middle of a controversy. And I think uh, it will be instructive to go back and take a look at uh, the history of this thing. Uh, not that there's an, an answer in the history, but uh, uh, there's an opportunity to set the stage for finding an answer. Tanner, can you replay? I want to play this piece again uh, from Governor George Romney. We're going to just truncate it a little bit. We'll start at 30 seconds and then we'll go to four minutes. This is again Governor Romney talking about the history of the Republican Party and its intense rejection, what he calls extremism, which, you know, obviously still exists in the party today, a rejection of immigrants. Uh, and at this time, this was in the 1800s, these, this group he's talking about, the Know-Nothings, which is really the Republican Party, they were rejecting the um, immigration of uh, mostly Catholics into the United States. They were virulently anti-Catholic. They were an evangelical Protestant group, and uh, wow, they went to war on these Catholics on the East Coast, and 
Governor Romney was talking about this, you know, within memory for some of us. In fact, some of us were alive when he said these words, bringing to the attention of the Republican Party the importance of open hearts and open minds. Tanner, could you please? Congressman Laird, fellow delegates, and fellow Republicans, I'm here at this convention because I profoundly believe that present basic trends and perils are rushing us toward a national crisis. And I believe to avoid or to survive that crisis, the Republican Party must promote the program and provide the leadership that will capture the interest, respect, and support of a majority of Americans. I think the future of this nation depends on that. Now, I want to make it perfectly clear. I'm not here to aid any candidate speaking at this time, and I am not here to detract from any candidate. And I appear to seek your open-minded consideration of a still stronger and more complete platform that will meet our needs as a party and as a nation. We have a good platform. I'm not here to criticize this platform. I'm here to improve it. I make this urgent plea for your open minds and hearts for the purpose of giving the candidates to be selected by this convention a better opportunity to win this fall. The strongest personality on earth cannot deal with the problems of this nation except upon the basis of correct principles. Our party was founded at a time of grave national crisis. It was our mission at our birth under Lincoln to preserve this nation established by divine providence with a divine destiny. The nation and its destiny were imperiled not only by the irreconcilable conflict between slavery and freedom, but also by the extremism of that time. And the extremism and lily-white Protestantism destroyed the Whig Party and brought the Republican Party into being. The extremists of that day called themselves the sacred cult of the Star-Spangled Banner, officially. They were known popularly as the Know-Nothings. While their political leaders sought refuge in silence, while other political leaders did, Lincoln spoke out as forcefully against the Know-Nothing extremists of his day as he did about slavery. He attacked both as a violation of the source, as the source of freedom and greatness. He attacked both slavery and know-nothing extremism as a violation of the principle of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of all mankind. And had That's Lincoln good, Tanner. Thanks very much. 
So this is Governor Romney highlighting President Lincoln's rejection of what Romney called, not what I'm calling, but what Romney called, we all listened to it, Lily White, Protestantism, Lily White. That's pretty descriptive. And Romney is saying that it destroyed the Whig Party, which was the precursor of our Republican Party today. This was a very anti-immigrant group, anti-immigrant in the extreme. And we see that working its way through American history, and we're going to talk about that today. And, you know, when things start out, they start out one way, and in politics they get outflanked and they get used. So let's. this is one bookend. Let's go to the other bookend, which is some comments that President Biden very recently made Excuse me, at Howard University. Could you please play that for me, Tanner? To stand up against the poison of white supremacy, as I did my inaugural address to a single out as the most dangerous terrorist threat to our homeland, is white supremacy. And I'm not saying this because I'm at a black HBCU. I say wherever I go. Well, I guess uh, Governor Romney and uh, President Biden agree. Uh, But they were said with completely different intents. Governor Romney was calling on the Republican Party to open its hearts and minds to the diversity of our country. President Biden was weaponizing the history of the Republican Party, and saying that that Republican Party is the white supremacist movement and is the greatest threat to our country. didn't quite say it that succinctly, but that's how I'm taking it because I'm putting it within the context of all the other things that are said about the Republican Party, about, about President Trump, you know, about all these issues. It's one giant stew pot, really, of BS. Uh, I don't think anybody really is caring about people anymore. They're caring about power. I think Governor Romney actually had a very sincere intent to move the Republican Party forward in 1964. So this this immigration thing and this white supremacy thing, this you know, this goes all the way back to the way back, and now here we are, we're facing it again in, in everyday life, every day. And I thought it would be instructive to go back and take a look at what uh, the recent history of our presidents have had to say on this idea of immigration. So we're just going to run through a series of uh, clips, president by president. I'll make some comments in between for context, and then we'll start our our conversation today. Thanks very much. Tanner, let's listen to President Kennedy. This is a great inheritance. It is a proud privilege to be a citizen of the great republic, to hear its song sung, to realize that we are the descendants of 40 million people who left other countries, other familiar scenes, to come here to the United States to build a new life, to make a new opportunity for themselves and their children. I think it is not a burden, but a privilege to have the chance in 1963 to share that great concept which they felt so deeply among all of our people. 
to make this really, as it was for them, a new world, a new world for us and indeed for all those who look to us. That is what this organization has stood for for 50 years. That's what this country has stood for for 200 years. And that's what this country will continue to stand for. Thank you. Thank you, Tanner. Uh, that was uh, President Kennedy uh, talking about the immigrant history of our country. What he was, I think, trying to say was that uh, we're a nation of immigrants. And uh, we come from different places with different cultures, different cultural backgrounds. And he was, you know, really, it's one of the first public speeches about diversity and the, the strength that can come with diversity as long as we all become Americans. That's pretty important because we have our own country and our own culture. So if you look back at the history of uh, immigration policy in this country, oh my gosh. This thing, there are so many bills on immigration and restricted immigration that starts in 1790 with the Naturalization Act of 1790. Uh, citizenship was limited to white persons. Interesting, isn't it? And there's just bill after bill after bill after bill. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And... Um, Lyndon Baines Johnson, who was the next president in line after President Kennedy's very, president Kennedy's very untimely and violent death, uh, he was the president who signed the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act. And uh, we're going to listen to a little bit of this. We'll stop at 503. This is very instructive. Please. The president's remarks upon October signing 3rd, the immigration bill on Liberty Island in New York City, October 3rd, 1965. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Ambassador Goldberg, uh, distinguished members of the leadership of the Congress, distinguished governors and mayors, my fellow countrymen. We have called the Congress here this afternoon not only to mark a very historic occasion, but to settle a very old issue that is in dispute. That issue is to what congressional uh, district does Liberty Island really belong? Congressman Farbstein or Congressman Gallagher? It will be settled by whomever of the two can walk first to the top of the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> this bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. It does not affect the lives of millions. It will not reshape the structure of our daily lives or really add importantly to either our wealth or our power. Yet it is still one of the most important acts of this Congress and of this administration. For it does repair a very deep and painful flaw in the fabric of American justice. It corrects a cruel and enduring wrong in the conduct of the American nation. Speaker McCormick and Congressman Seller, more than uh, almost 40 years ago, first pointed that out in their maiden speeches in the Congress. And this measure that we will sign today 
will really make us truer to ourselves, both as a country and as a people. It will strengthen us in a hundred unseen ways. And I have come here to thank personally each member of the Congress who labored so long and so valiantly to make this occasion come true today and to make this bill a reality. I cannot mention all their names, for it would take uh, much too long. But my gratitude and that of this nation belongs to the 89th Congress. We are in debt, too, to the vision of the late beloved President John Fitzgerald Kennedy and to the support given to this measure by the then Attorney General and now Senator Robert F. Kennedy. In the final days of consideration, this bill had no more able champion than the present Attorney General, Nicholas Katzenbach, who with New York's own Manny Seller and Senator Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts and Congressman Fehan of Ohio and Senator Mansfield and Senator Dirksen constituting the leadership of the Senate and Senator Javits helped to guide this bill to passage along with the help of the members sitting in front of me today. This bill says simply that from this day forth, those wishing to immigrate to America shall be admitted on the basis of their skills and their close relationships to those already here. This is a simple test, and it is a fair test. Those who can contribute most to this country, to its growth, to its strength, to its spirit, will be the first that are admitted to this land. The fairness of this standard is so self-evident that we may well wonder that it has not always been applied. Yet the fact is that for over four decades, the immigration policy of the United States has been twisted and has been distorted by the harsh injustice of the national origins quota system. Under that system, the ability of new immigrants to come to America depended upon the country of their birth. Only three countries were allowed to supply 70% of all the immigrants. Families were kept apart. That's good. That's good, Dan. And guess what? Those three countries, they talk about countries. Well, it really wasn't about countries, actually. It was really about race. Those three countries were the United Kingdom, Great Britain, England, Germany, and Ireland. 70% of the legal immigration came from just three countries. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the people that brought this into being because they're notorious. And I thought it was interesting to hear about Senator Javits and, you know, Vice President Humphrey was standing there and two Kennedy brothers. It's nice to take a look back in the time capsule of history and look at the people that shaped the world we live in today. You know, as Americans, we could actually seek out this information instead of watching cartoons. It might ennoble us and uplift us and make us, you know, it'll make, it makes me better able to speak to you and for you better able to speak to me and to the people around you 
We need this. We need to know what happened. We have to check out the real situation. So what LBJ signed, this 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, it ended four decades of intense racial discrimination as regards immigration. And you see that there was a redress that happened starting with President Kennedy. This was a redress of immigration policy that had gone back to 1790, which was a whites-only policy. It was a redress, a, a evolution of American society and of American thinking based on many, many movements that had started in the 50s, predominantly was the civil rights movement. And uh, there really wasn't a lot said by Nixon and by Ford or Carter about immigration. They just let <clears throat> people come to the country. The country was still relatively underpopulated. We had a rapidly expanding economy. And people just came in here, and really they were used as uh, low-cost labor, and nobody said anything until it started to, you know, get a little bit out of control. And uh, there was a pushback, and that started uh, during the Reagan administration. So let's listen to what uh, President Reagan had to say. But it is true our borders are out of control. It is also true that this has been a situation on our borders back through a number of administrations. And I supported this bill. I believe in the idea of amnesty for those who have put down roots and who have lived here, even though some time back uh, they may have entered illegally. With regard to the employer sanctions, this we must have that, not only to ensure that we can identify the illegal aliens, but also, while some keep protesting about what it would do to employers, there is another employer that we shouldn't be so concerned about. And these are employers down through the years who have encouraged the illegal entry into this country because they then hire these individuals and hire them at starvation wages and with none of the benefits that we think are normal and natural for workers in our country, and the individuals can't complain because of their illegal status. We don't think that those people should be allowed to continue operating free. And this was why the provisions that we had in with regard to sanctions and so forth. And I'm going to do everything I can, and all of us in the administration are, to join in again when Congress is back at it to get an immigration bill that will give us once again control of our borders. And with regard to friendship below the border and uh, with the countries down there, yes, no administration that I know has established the relationship that we have with our Latin friends. But as long as they have an economy that leaves so many people in dire poverty and unemployment, they are going to seek that employment across our borders. And we work with those other countries. That's good. Thank you. And uh, President Reagan did sign in 1986 the Immigration Reform and Control Act. And this was really uh, aimed at uh, curtailing the very manipulative and unfair practice of employers who supported this immigration, this illegal immigration, and then hired people at, as, as Reagan said, slave wages. Um, this, this bill ended up being a failure for for many reasons, but it, it gives some context that the great lion of the Republican Party, 
and our party, the party is so, you know, really virulently anti-immigration right now, or particularly anti-illegal immigration, here's Reagan saying his quote, I believe in amnesty for illegal aliens. So this redress, this change of policy, um, it was ongoing. Uh, but, hey, ebbs and flows. Here comes Bill Clinton, Democrat. Let's listen to what Bill had to say. 1995 State of the Union. All Americans, not only in the states most heavily affected, but in every place in this country, are rightly disturbed by the large numbers of illegal aliens entering our country. The jobs they hold might otherwise be held by citizens or legal immigrants. The public service they use impose burdens on our taxpayers. That's why our administration has moved aggressively to secure our borders more, by hiring a record number of new border guards, by deporting twice as many criminal aliens as ever before, by cracking down on illegal hiring, by barring welfare benefits to illegal aliens. In the budget I will present to you, we will try to do more to speed the deportation of illegal aliens who are arrested for crimes, to better identify illegal aliens in the workplace as recommended by the commission headed by former Congresswoman Barbara Jordan. We are a nation of immigrants, but we are also a nation of laws. It is wrong and ultimately self-defeating for a nation of immigrants to permit the kind of abuse of our immigration laws we have seen in recent years, and we must do more to stop it. That's good. We got the flavor of that. Let's just keep rolling right along because it just, you know, it just gives a historical context to the conversation. George W. Bush on the isms. States in the Internet world. I do believe there will be a rational immigration policy eventually passed. I think there's going to have to be some time. What's interesting about our country, if you study history, is that uh, there are some isms that occasionally pop up. Pop up. One is isolationism and it's evil twin protectionism, and it's evil triplet nativism. So if you study the 20s, for example, there was, uh, there was a, an American first policy that said, who cares what happens in Europe? Well, what happened in Europe mattered uh, eventually uh, because of World War II. There was Smoot-Hawley, which was a part of an economic policy, which basically said we don't want trade. Now, there was a throw up barriers, and there was an immigration policy that I think during this period argued we had too many Jews and too many Italians, therefore we should have no immigrants. And my point to you is, is we've been through this kind of uh, period of isolationism, protections, and nativism. I'm a little concerned that we may be going through the same period. Well, here you go. This is uh, George W. His father, George H.W. These are the... Uh, his father, George H.W., was uh, really the... You know, he's the granddaddy of... Uh, the current globalist architecture. He was the head of the CIA. He was the ambassador to China. George W., his uh, son, was uh, carrying on the tradition of globalism. He was speaking out against the isms of isolationism, protectionism, and nativism. In other words, why have a country? Why have a national character? We're going to have a global governance. That's what he was talking about there. Part of our ongoing conversation here is balancing the idea of the American country, our, our country, our, our sovereign nation, and our need and our involvement with world affairs. But quite clearly, he was hearkening back to the know-nothings 
Maybe he wasn't that educated. I don't know, but he was talking about nativism, which is what the know-nothings and the roots of the Republican Party were all about, and he was fighting against that. Fighting, isn't that isn't Clinton? Clinton was on the know-nothing side. This thing kind of waxes and wanes; it ebbs and flows. But the the overall movement forward was a, away from an intensely racist uh, immigration policy. Whites only. 1790. That's where we started. Oh, here comes President Obama. Let's hear what he has to has to say. President Obama says the U.S. immigration system is broken and dangerous, and the country's borders are too vast for the problem to be solved only by building more fences. In some, the system is broken, and everybody knows it. At American University's School of International Service, the president made his first major appeal for a comprehensive reform of the nation's immigration policies. White House officials say the president's decision to speak about the issue was influenced by several factors, including the state of Arizona's recent passage of a tough law against illegal immigrants. Mr. Obama said inaction at the federal level has led to what he considers a bad law. Into this breach, states like Arizona have decided to take matters into their own hands. Now, given the levels of frustration across the country, this is understandable. But it is also ill-conceived. The new law has been met with protests around the country, although polls show that a majority of Americans questioned support it. The president said a comprehensive solution is needed for America's immigration problem. He sought to reassure those who want to get tough on illegal migrants by saying he does not support giving amnesty to people who are in the United States against the law. And no matter how decent they are, no matter their reasons, the 11 million who broke these laws should be held accountable. Mr. Obama also reassured pro-immigrant groups that he has no intention of trying to round up and deport those who are in the country illegally. Such an effort would be logistically impossible and wildly expensive. Moreover, it would tear at the very fabric of this nation. Mr. Obama urged U.S. lawmakers to have the political courage to address an important issue. Despite the president's appeal, members of Congress, many of whom are seeking re-election in November, are not likely to take up the controversial issue of immigration reform this year. Kent Klein, Thank DOA you, Tanner. And then as a transition, let's go right into Donald Trump. Big change, as we know. Nearly 180,000 illegal immigrants with criminal records ordered deported from our country are tonight roaming free to threaten peaceful citizens. The number of new illegal immigrant families who have crossed the border so far this year already exceeds the entire total from 2015. They are being released by the tens of thousands into our communities with no regard for the impact on public safety or resources.
One such border crosser was released and made his way to Nebraska. There, he ended the life of an innocent young girl named Sarah Root. She was 21 years old and was killed the day after graduating from college with a 4.0 grade point average, number one in her class. Her killer was then released a second time, and he is now a fugitive from the law. I've met Sarah's beautiful family, but to this administration, their amazing daughter was just one more American life that wasn't worth protecting. No more. One more child to sacrifice on the order and on the altar of open borders. Well, let's just show this oscillation because it was moving in a direction from President Kennedy, and then it started to really gain some mm, coherence. The oscillations got very small, and then it exploded with huge oscillations policy-wise. Let's listen to President Biden on illegal immigration. Just 14 seconds says it all. I would, in fact, make sure that there is, we immediately surge to the border. All those people are seeking asylum. They deserve to be heard. That's who we are. We're a nation that says if you want to flee and you're fleeing oppression, you should come. Well, that, that really summarizes it right there. Uh, we have a long history of needing people to come in to feed our economic growth. So they picked and choose. There was a, it was a very racist kind of lottery, and that was reformed. People were needed. The economy was growing, and everything was good. And then, you know, things started to slow down with international trade as our jobs started to go to Japan and then go to China and to all these other countries, we needed less labor. And it started to affect the health and well-being of the American citizens, lowering wages. We started to have a political issue. But the underlying piece of this thing is, why do people want to come here? Why do they run here? And um, come, really, if you think about it, and I've thought about it because I'm an immigrant. I know why my family came here, was come here or die. And all my family members who didn't get to the United States of America did, in fact, die. And they didn't die of old age. They died brutally, murdered. So, you know, there's the UN. If you go to the UN website, they come up with all these reasons why people migrate. They call them migrants. But if you really sit down and think about it, you're leaving behind everything you know, everything you have, everything you'll ever be in that area, and everything you ever were. And you're picking up and you're going to a new country. It takes a lot of bravery or a lot of fear. The fear of being killed or abused. Persecution. This, you know, you could take all of the different reasons the UN gives. It all comes down to people run because they have to, not because they want to. And uh, when people are running, uh, there's certain, uh, they don't mind being illegal. 
you know, and going back into this history that, you know, Johnson was talking about redressing the wrongs that, that Johnson was redressing. Uh, anybody been to Vegas? Have you been to Las Vegas? I bet you many of you have been to Vegas, right? So we used to land at McCarran International Airport. Now it's Harry Reid Airport. And uh, Harry Reid was Democratic senator, he, you know, for a long time. He was, uh, he was the uh, top dog there in the Democrat Party. And he said about McCarran, Pat McCarran, who was also a senator, he was one of the most prejudiced people who ever served in the Senate. And uh, this Pat McCarran, uh, he passed a bill, he, he wrote a bill called the McCarran-Walter Act in, in uh, June 1952. Now, this guy had had a history before that. He was very critical of President's President Roosevelt's willingness to intervene into Europe. Uh, he opposed Roosevelt's plan to aid Great Britain. Uh, he, in a speech on the Senate floor in 1941, declared that he despised both Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin, but if he had to choose, he regarded the Third Reich as the lesser evil. Okay, interesting, isn't it? This guy was a rabid anti-Semite. And uh, he he passed the he champion he wrote and championed a bill which did pass because he wasn't alone. At by the way, it passed, so it had broad bipartisan support. Nineteen fifty two, the McCarran Walter Act. It imposed uh, rigid restrictions, uh, you know, and quotas for immigrants entering the United States. McCarran said, "This is a quote. I'm not making it up." It's great. You don't have to wonder what's in the guy's head because he wrote it down. I believe that this nation is the last hope of Western civilization, which in his mind was lily white Protestantism, or in his case, in his case, he was a Catholic. Lily white. Let's just stick with the lily white. Isn't that interesting? He was a Catholic. The know nothings would have never let him in the country, but he picked up on it. You know, sometimes we pick up the the uh, hatreds of our oppressors. It's a known psychological uh, uh, mechanism. I believe that this nation is the last hope of Western civilization. And if this oasis of the world shall be overrun, perverted, contaminated, or destroyed, that would be by Jews in his mind, then the last flickering light of humanity will be extinguished. I take no issue with those who would praise the contributions which have been made to our society by people of many races of varied creeds and colors. America is indeed joining together of many streams. America is indeed a joining together of many streams which go to form a mighty river which we call the American way. However, we have in the United States today hardcore, indigestible blocks which have not become integrated into the American way of life, but which, on the contrary, are its deadly enemies. Today, as never before, untold millions are storming our gates for admission, and those gates are cracking under the strain. The solution of the problems of Europe and Asia will not come through a transplanting of those problems en masse into the United States. I do not intend to become prophetic, but if the enemies of this legislation succeed in riddling it to pieces or in amending it beyond recognition, 
they will have contributed more to promote this nation's downfall than any other group since we achieved our independence as a nation. Oddly prophetic and profoundly racist. And um, he was really uh, trying to block the immigration of the survivors of the Holocaust from coming into the country. And he succeeded, which led to all kinds of additional illegal, illegal immigration. And, uh, you know, what, what, what can we say? This immigration thing is a stew pot of, of, uh, of yesterday's leftovers. It's a mess. It's a, it's a conglomeration of every kind of weird racial and anti-Semitic and anti-Catholic and anti-immigrant sentiment that has existed since the beginning of the country, and we're 350 million immigrants. You know, we got to look at this and try to figure it out now. What are we going to do? So the question is, why do people run? Well, here's McCarran blocking people from running. Let's take a look at the other side of the equation. What was really going on? Play this piece on the MS St. Louis, please. 33 seconds. Refugees without a country. 900 wandering Jews have found a haven at last. They crossed from Hamburg to Cuba, but in Havana they were refused entry and had to return to Europe and possibly to Hamburg, the city they dreaded. In every harbor, friends come out to give them words of cheer and sympathy, while they appeal by radio to the democracies. Eventually they're allowed to land in Holland, when some will go to Belgium and France, and others to England. So at last the wanderers find rest in lands which cherish freedom. And let's just follow up with this uh, next piece on the MS St. Louis, just for a little more context. The MS St. Louis set sail on May 13, 1939, from Hamburg, Germany, to Cuba, with 937 passengers aboard, most of them Jewish refugees, trying to escape Germany. Once in Havana, only 22 Jews were allowed to disembark. The United States and Canada prohibited the liner from docking, forcing the captain to negotiate with European countries to accept the passengers. After weeks in limbo, England, France, Belgium and the Netherlands agreed to take the refugees. Of the 907 Jews who went back to Europe, 254 of them were eventually murdered during the Holocaust. Between 1933 and 1945, Canada accepted less than 5,000 Jewish refugees. Thank you. Well, okay, so that boat went to Cuba. And uh, I'm certainly no fan of Alejandro Nicolas Mayorkas, who is our current Secretary of, Secretary of Homeland Security. And when I look at the guy, I go, what is this guy? Can't really figure him out. So I, uh, I researched him. Well. And this is the guy that's going up before our Congress and saying everything's just Jake at the border. He's lying. My opinion, sorry, Secretary, but my opinion is you're not really being straight because if you take a look at what's going on, I think many of the, you know, you probably have seen yourself. If you've been tuned in and checking out the real situation, there's chaos at the border. I hope you agree with me. And people are coming across that border in the millions. And we have an open border policy under the Biden administration. And millions and millions of people are coming in. Millions. Millions of people are coming in. And you have to ask yourself, you know, what's going on here? Are these people really, this is back to my old question, are these people dumb or are they malevolent? 
I don't know. I don't want to, I'm not a judge. That's why I want truth commissions. So they come in and tell us. But there's another care, category here. Well-intentioned. There's well-intentioned, just not doing the right thing. There's stupid. And then there's malevolent. Well, I, you know, I looked up this Mayorkas because I could never figure him out. When I saw him, he's, he's, an, he's a unique-looking individual. And guess what? He was born in Havana, Cuba in 1959. Uh, believe it or not, his father, Mayorkas himself, these people are Jewish, was born in Cuba. I'm not saying that his family was one of those two refu 22 refugees or whatever that low number was that the Cubans admitted when that boat landed in Havana. But his family, his forebears, did flee Europe and escape being killed, unlike my family. I mean, just a handful of my family got out. Everybody else died. I know some of their names. I know how they died. I think I mentioned on a previous podcast, some Ukrainians took uh, my great-grandfather, trussed him up, tied him to the back of a truck, and dragged him through the village until he died. He was the leader of the village, so they wanted him to scream for seven or eight hours and soil himself and humiliate him and use that as an act of terror against the other people in the village. Not the Nazis, the Ukrainians. So, well, Ukrainian Nazis, we could say. Anyhow, the, his, his family was from, um, his father was from uh, the former Ottoman Empire. They were, this is present-day uh, Turkey and Greece. He, he was, the father was named Nicky Mayorkas, Cuban Jew. And uh, he married uh, Anita Gabor, who was a Romanian Jew, who also escaped the Holocaust. And her family also fled to Cuba in the early 1940s. And when the Cuban Revolution happened, and that's another thing we should talk about someday, it's interesting history, they, uh, they made way to Miami, and then they made way to Los Angeles, and uh, uh, Mayorkas uh, went to school in California, and he got a law degree at Loyola Law School in 1985 and became a government worker. And here he sits, and, uh, you know, I haven't talked to him. In fact, I'd love to invite him on and talk to him. And one day when this podcast is big enough, I hope people like this come on, because I, I really I don't want to make any insinuations. I don't know what's in this guy's mind. I can only make up a story. And, I, and when I'm making up a story, I like to tell you. And when you make up a story, please tell me, because stories are stories. We don't have, I mean, I have not seen one thing, and I look for it. But let's just review the facts. This man's family escaped certain death by being a migrant or an illegal immigrant into Cuba. I don't know what the case was. Uh, certainly, his family left behind many other people, and they know how they died. They died, and uh, they were oppressed and persecuted, and here he is in a position now today, and he sees these millions of people, you know, leaving these countries, and, uh, you know, there's this sentiment out there that somehow there's some grand master strategy, and there may be, I don't know. But uh, here's what I do know. He, he's, he's helping these people get in the country because if his father had not gotten into Cuba, he wouldn't be alive. If my grandfather hadn't gotten into this country, I would not be alive. 
That's all there is to it. In Venezuela, which is the number one, uh, one of the number, one of the top, uh, you know, countries from which these people are coming here illegally, more than seven million Venezuelans have fled that country since 2015 because of crippling poverty and political crises. There's a humanitarian disaster there, severe shortages of food and medicine, inflation last year. 686%. In other words, there's no economy. In fact, I heard yesterday that they, the interest rate that their central bank in char- is charging is 100%. It's like a joke, right? It's not even real. Uh, average wage uh, is about uh, $8 a month. The top dogs are making 500 bucks a month. It's not a very nice place to live. It's collapsed under the weight of socialism. It was a very prosperous country. In fact, at one time, it's one of the most prosperous countries in the world. And much like our country, it moved in a socialist direction and the country fell apart. And the people are running away. Honduras, the deadliest country in Latin America. 35.8 homicides per 100,000 residents. Pretty high. Poverty and political instability drive migration. Half of Hondurans are living on less than $6.85 a day. 13% lived on less than $2.15 a day. That's not an hour. Ecuador. By the end of 2022, 5.4 million Ecuadorians, or 30% of the population, live in poverty. Again, you know, more socialism down there. Now, these are all ex- Colonies, too. So you got an impact of colonialism in these places. And uh, these countries were kicked around like footballs by the opposing blocks of the communist bloc and the Western bloc. I mean, th- th- these people have been used as pawns for generations. Guatemala. More than half of the Guatemalan population, including almost the entire co- indigenous population, live in poverty. That's unbelievable. Colombia. Armed Colombian groups recruit children that have been displaced. Thousands fight for control of rural areas of the country. President Gustavo Petro has prioritized peace negotiations with guerrilla groups, including the National Liberation Army, which controls the drug trafficking. But it's not a nice place. The country's at war. People are bugging to see. They want to survive, right? Haiti. Here's a Here's a post-colonial nightmare, thanks to the French. Haiti suffers from extreme poverty and political instability. The capital, Port-au-Prince, is largely controlled by gangs. The current crisis has escalated in chaos following the assassination, the recent assassination of the president. Only 13% of the country's workforce labors in the formal sector. That means everybody else is just living at subsistence. I mean, it's just, I mean, these people are being driven out of these countries. Then you put on top of this the uh, the COVID lockdowns. I mean, these, these economies, our country, the United States of America, the richest country in the world, our economy has essentially been, we haven't figured it out yet, but we're about to. Our economy has been ruined by this COVID response. Now that, when we get these truth commissions put together, that was malevolent, okay? Now we're getting into 
okay, we I have enough to make my own opinion. Those lockdowns and the way that pandemic was handled was, in fact, in my opinion, malevolent. And it's destroyed our economy here in the United States. But we, had a, we have a very robust and deep economy. Think about Guatemala or Haiti. They locked these people down. I mean, they're starving them to death. Of course they're on the move. Now, are they being driven into the United States on purpose? Truth commissions. I don't know. But when you talk about Secretary Mayorkas, who sits in front of the Congress, and in my opinion is not very straight, I am going to guess, no evidence, making up a story, that based on his personal history, uh, he has some sympathy for these people, knowing that if they stay in their native countries, they're likely to die. And he knows that if his father hadn't gotten out of Europe, he wouldn't be alive. His father would have died there. Maybe when the Truth Commission start, someone might ask, was this man chosen specifically because of his predisposition in this regard? President Biden, could you explain that to us? Or was it happenstance? You know, because a lot of stuff happens for reasons we'll just never understand. But the, the issue for the American people, the issue for me as an American citizen is, had I not been admitted to this country, my family, I would be dead, or I would have never been born, and all my relatives that are here would have died. So I know there's going to be listeners and viewers who are going to say, they should have died. We don't want Jews in the country. Hey, let me give you a, I'm going to share something with you. I'm what uh, some people would call a perfected Jew because I know Christ. Now what you got to say for yourself, okay? Interesting, isn't it? <laughs> this stuff is not simple. You're going to have to work through it step by step. But I think as an American, one of the 300 million people plus that are in this country, I have some sensitivity to these people. And uh, I don't have the, the desire to demonize them. But something has happened. I played all these presidents. Something's happened along the way. Something has happened along the way. And when things change, we have to really be aware of it. And, of course, we're not supposed to be aware of it. That's why we have the Professor Penn podcast because I want to share with you and I want you to share with me what we're discovering. Because I would be, under normal circumstances, not that concerned about immigration because our economy, I would be concerned about reindustrializing America, bringing all of our industry back. And then we're going to need people because we don't have enough workers. <laughs> and let me tell you, in certain segments of our economy, like high-tech, oh, I'm going to tell you, they want immigration in high-tech. And if you, the, the, the dirty little secret about this is if you got a Ph.D. in artificial intelligence and you're a Guatemalan, we got a university profession, position for you. If you're, a, you're an Ecuadorian and you know about chip design, hey, you're on the fast track to getting over here. So when it comes to high-tech, you're going to see our Congress is very shortly going to admit Hundreds of thousands of people from wrong. Well, they're going to pay these people. It's going to be a bidding war because we're in a transhumanist uh, arms race 
to see who can make the most efficient and effective killing robot the fastest. Who can evolve humanity the fastest into a non-carbon-based life form? Hey, for that, there's trillions. But when it comes to these poor bastards, hey, we're not letting them in. Well, they're coming anyhow because the wall never got finished. And uh, apparently this problem has been going on since uh, at least uh, Jimmy Carter and uh, Gerald Ford because President Reagan alluded to presidents that came before him. These people have been coming in. Now, let's all, let's get down to another real deal here. We have a military that can drop a cruise missile on the eye of a gnat 5,000 miles away, and we can't close the border? There's a BS story, right? Of course they could close the borders. The borders are open for a reason, and that's because we need the people to work. But something happened. Something changed. And I think President Trump was the first person to blow the whistle on this. Something changed. Something's been weaponized. But it's not immigration. We've got to look at what the real situation is. Immigration is a natural movement of people because an individual has to pick up and leave everything behind, not because they want to, but because they have to. No, that's not what's weaponized. What's been weaponized is our economy. Uh, there's a couple of people that, you know, any, any if you've been listening to my podcast, you know I have a particular ax to grind in my personal life with Columbia University because this place has been a stew pot of everything bad for a very long time. In the 1960s, there was two uh, academic appointments there, two professors, Richard Cloward and Francis Fox Piven. They're known as Cloward and Piven. They were married. They were a machine gun team. Let's talk about Cloward for a second. Because, you know, you want to go back and look at where these people got what they got. So there was a guy named Sorokin. He was born on February 4th, 1889, in the Russian Empire. And this guy became educated, and he got into this country, and became a Ph.D., and he taught. And he taught a guy named Robert King Merton. That was a pseudonym. Robert King Merton's real name was Meyer Robert Skolnick. These people were Lonsmen. They were uh, from the same group. He's considered the founding father of modern sociology. This guy was uh, teaching at Columbia. So we had uh, one PhD taught another PhD, and it got down to Cloward. So these two guys had been around for decades, and here comes Richard Cloward. And these guys came from this European intellectual tradition, which we've talked about a lot. Anti-crown, anti-discrimination, because the anti-crown political philosophy in Europe was called Marxism. And these people got in the country, which is, you know, why Senator McCarran was so against these people getting in the country. You know, things are complicated. There's truth in everything, even the most horrifying policies. There's something there we need to look at. These guys brought Marxism into the country. They perverted, or wrong word, they altered the arc of American history. I don't want to get, I personally feel that Marxism is perverse. 
and I'm going to share with you why. It's predicated on that there's no God. So let me just come right out and say it is perverse. It, it perverts people. It ruins them. But it ruins their well-being because you cannot be well if you don't have a spiritual life. And I see this around me all the time because, you know, we're living in a, in a world that is essentially no longer based on faith. It's really based on materialism and radical materialism. And I see all these people around me. They're ruined. They're physically ruined. They're intellectually ruined. They're emotionally ruined. And they don't know why. They go to the doctor, and the doctor puts them on drugs because he's also ruined. What kind of drugs do they put them on? Psychoactive drugs. That makes them not feel their feelings. Oh, what an improvement that is. By the way, these two sociologists, these two Europeans that came in here, they specialized in criminology. Sidebar. Anyhow, as things so happened, this um, father of sociology, I just enjoy this, born Meyer Robert Skulnick, took the name Robert King Merton. You know, it's a good pseudonym, right? Taught this Dr. Richard Cloward, who became a professor at Columbia. Cloward was an activist in the 1960s. And he married this uh, Frances Fox Piven. Uh, she was taught at the University of Chicago. I've got a place, I've got a special place in my heart for that too, since I've donated so much of my money to their Marxism. She was taught by a guy named Edward C. Banfield, which, by the way, Banfield was a Republican. He was a conservative, which goes to show you the apple can fall far from the tree because she married Cloward. And they went off on a little uh, adventure. And uh, this was the Cloward-Piven strategy. Uh, the Cloward-Piven strategy was a political gambit designed to overwhelm the American government by placing so many demands on it that it's just going to collapse. Okay? That's their strategy. And it was relative to the welfare state at the time, just to give it a little context, uh, Cloward and Piven were the first people to come up with the idea, or they were the first people to codify the idea of what we call universal basic income. They believed that every American citizen should get money for doing nothing. Hey, great. Sounds great, doesn't it? Uh, I have to read this. I don't. You know, I, I wanted to avoid it, but I, let me just read it. Cloward and Piven focused on forcing the Democrat Party which in 1966 controlled the presidency in both houses to take federal action to help the poor. They stated that full enrollment of these eligible of those eligible for welfare would produce bureaucratic disruption in welfare agencies and fiscal disruption in local and state governments that would deepen existing divisions among elements in big city democratic coalitions and on onward and so forth. These people were Marxists. They wanted to use the system to bring the system down. Their motto was, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But if it ain't fixed, that's an opportunity to break it. And they had a strategy to break it, which was overwhelm the system. And of course, this didn't work. This did not work. There's been welfare reform and, you know, Clinton, 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 the Democratic centrist cover story. You know, he was he was elected on trying to deconstruct some of the welfare state. Guess who went to Columbia University? You know who went to Columbia University? That would be President Barack 
Hussein Obama. And this thing is a big deal at Columbia to this day. Breaking the system is a big deal. Because what do they want to break? They want to break the Constitution of the United States, which identifies in our founding documents, the Declaration, that there's a creator. The whole thing is based on a creator that grants certain unalienable rights. They don't like that. They don't like that. Remember, there's a religion here. It's called humanism. By the way, Colombia has one of the largest transhumanist programs in the world. It's called the Wang Laboratory. Wang, W-A-N-G. It's a Chinese name. I don't know why. might have something to do with the funding. But, you know, there, I, you know again, I'd like to have a truth commission. And I would say, President Obama, were you aware and did you study the Cloward-Piven strategy when you were at Columbia? I, I don't know. I'd like to hear what he has to say. I don't want to see anybody go to jail. I want them to tell the truth so we know what the hell happened to us here. Because President Obama really had one political accomplishment, and then for the next seven years, not too much happened. He spent all his political capital on one program, the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act. They call it Obamacare. Obamacare, Affordable Care Act, is a really interesting program. We need to kind of look at it closely. It's health care for all in a for-profit system. In other words, health care is a right, but somebody's going to make money off of it. Now, you want to talk about BS aimed at breaking the system? Boy, that's it. That is the most ridiculous. If, if health care is a natural, because that was the story, it's everyone's right to have health care. I mean, we hear it all the time from the Democrat Party. It's a right. Like it's a natural right, like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, those things, there's no price tag on them. But the price tag on Obamacare this year is going to be $1.6 trillion. We're $32 trillion in debt. And uh, just to let you know how well it's working, it's got nothing to do with well-being which is going to become a big subject of what we're going to talk about. It's got to do with managing people's diseases. Nay, verily, let me say, making people sick so we can make money off their diseases. 60%, do you have a chronic condition? I'm not judging you if you do. Do you have a chronic disease condition? You're not alone. 60% of American adults have a chronic disease condition, which requires management. Going to the doctor regular, getting drugs, and we've socialized that as far as paying these for-profit companies. All of our tax dollars are going to these for-profit companies. Remember that count room in the movie Casino where they were skimming that money off? Okay, let's say health care, disease care, Chronic disease management is a right. How can anybody make money off of that? That's goofy. But we do a lot of goofy things, like spend $1.1 trillion on uh, our military and uh, wondering why people are afraid of us. 
The number of undocumented migrant crossings at the southwest border in fiscal year 2022 topped 2.76 million, breaking the previous annual record by 1 million. I'm talking about the weaponization. It's not this immigration. It's the Affordable Care Act. This Affordable Care Act guarantees health care and also education, the education department, the education of these illegal immigrants and the health care of these illegal immigrants is guaranteed by federal statute. These people are not well, and they're going to need a lot of care. And we're $32 trillion in debt. And the American people now are dealing with the post-COVID world. All that unwellness that came from that. Talked about a friend of mine, a more healthier person I've never known, two-foot blood clot in his leg, going to the doctor. He's taken uh, a drug. I think he told me it cost $1,000 a month if he wasn't getting it through the Affordable Care Act, which it was under 100 bucks a month. We're paying for this. We can't afford it. Now, was this about immigration? This has been weaponized. This is the Cloward Piven strategy of breaking the system. And it is broken, and it's going to break. So the question we have to ask ourselves as American citizens, particularly if we have any, any net worth, Do you want to give all your money to support this? It's really about taking your money away, making you poor. Are you willing? I'm asking a question. I'm asking you a question. Are you willing to be poor to take care of these uh, unfortunates coming up from all the, from Central and South America, from all over the world? Are you willing to impoverish yourself Are you willing to give everything you've worked for and everything you could ever give your children and everything your children are ever going to acquire? Are you willing to make that zero to take care of all these illegal immigrants who clearly are running away? They're using these people. When I say they, come to the Truth Commission. Come on the channel. Let's talk about it. Because I I smell a rat here. I smell These people have been, these people who want to come to this country, including my family, We've been kicked around like a kickball since 1790. Remember the first Immigration Act? Whites only. Sounds a little bit like the South, remember? Whites only. Blacks have separate bathrooms. That kind of thing. This has been banging around in our culture since day one. And my natural inclination would be, because of my own family background, and like, you know, Secretary Mayorkas, These people are on the run for their lives. Surely, we as Americans are going to welcome into our country people that are suffering from the very same threat of death that we suffered from when we came here. I mean, why did all these Catholics leave Europe? And they met the know-nothings when they came here. Remember that scene with Bill the Butcher with the knives and the axes? These people had a fight. They had a fight to get out. They had a fight to get in got to know the real situation. But now we have a unique situation. Something's been changed. This Clower-Piven strategy has been talked about, but the trap was set, and now the trap is sprung.
because all these people are federally mandated to get health care and education. And we're broke. And it's going to break us. And I think my personal predisposition to this is somebody intends to break us because we have a humanist uh, revolution going on, the cornerstone of which is there's no God. And that those folks that want to use that, those folks that want that transhumanist future for us will use communism or socialism. They'll use Nazism or liberalism. They don't care what ism they use. They'll use any ism. And right now in this country, they're using Marxism. And boy, I'll tell you what, you just have to make everybody poor and everybody's going to want that universal basic income. And then America's a very different place. So, you know, I think we need to talk. I want to talk to you about how to deal with this issue, how to deal with all these unfortunate people. Uh, what are we going to do with these countries? Who's making these countries so poor? What the hell is going on here? What's the United Nations up to? I think we need to check it out. I thought the United Nations was supposed to take care of things like this. I think they are taking care of it. Let's just remember, why do PhDs get PhDs? They have to contribute something new to thinking. So they study what's happened. So they study when things went wrong. And then they get a job in government, and they know exactly how to make things go wrong. That's who we've got populating our government. That's who's on the Council of Foreign Relations, a bunch of people that know how to break things. And they're breaking them, left, right, and center. Great, isn't it? Isn't it great to know that these people live in a new religion that we know very little about? We just get the downstream, which is, you know, legalized drugs and porn and uh, being stupid, being ruined, our family's broken. 60% of Americans with chronic diseases. Hey, if you're so smart, why can't you help us stay well? Hey, if you're so smart, if we're so, are you going to, oh, but you know what? That's the reason why we have to evolve the species, because they're going to tell us, and they're going, they're going to tell us that we have genetic predisposition to disease. At the same time, if you look in the literature, all that disease is very influenced by culture and by behavioral choices, but they're not going to talk about that. You can't make any money off of just telling people to take a walk. Because taking a walk is free. Like, I took a walk yesterday for three miles. It was beautiful outside. I, I breathed the air. I don't take any drugs. I just don't. I'm not saying I wouldn't if I had to. But I have no interest in it. I want to stay well. So, this has been weaponized. We're living in this Cloward Piven world. They have, they have weaponized. They have weaponized this this entire thing. And when I say they, I know who they are. We're going to start calling them out. Our elites, our credentialized leaders know what they're doing. They know it. Some of them have good intentions, but they're just not considering the implications of their decisions. Some are dumb and they're just on the payroll and some are incredibly malevolent and tricky. 
you know, I want to go out on a personal limb, like President Biden going to a commencement ceremony at an HBCU, a historically black, black college and university, Howard University, and talking to a bunch of people that have just worked really hard to get college degrees. I don't know how hard it is. Maybe it wasn't that hard. But he says the number one for you know to a to a to an auditorium full of young black graduates, the number one threat facing you is white supremacy. Uh, I think the number one uh, threat facing them is poverty, and sixty percent of the population having chronic disease. Sixty percent of the people in that room, if things track exactly the way they are now, are going to get sick prematurely and suffer. That's a threat. That's a real threat. Why don't we talk about the real situation? Like here in Minnesota. What's going on? And when I talk about Minnesota, because I know people are listening to me from all around the country, it's just a, 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 an example. Well, what's going on here in Minnesota is going on in Kentucky. It's going on everywhere, every state. So when I talk about you know my home state of Minnesota, it's because I want to form a political constituency around this podcast and around digital communication that allows us to really move the needle here to, oh, I have to share with you. One of my activist friends called in and he said, you know, I, I listened to that thing about kill the elephant. He said, call it stomp the elephant. I like that. Stomp the elephant. So, you know, how are we going to rebrand the party? How are we going to get a product put together that 70% of the American people are going to get behind? How are we going to get off of this polarization, which is just being used the count room. Well, we're killing each other. That count room. They're robbing us. What's new in Minnesota? Because it's new everywhere. So that, as I've said, the Democrat Party has complete control of our government here. And uh, they're changing all the rules and changing the way business is done because, hey, they're in complete control. And it's not the kind of Democrat Party I grew up with here in Minnesota. It's not the Democrat Farmer Labor Party because the next thing they're going to do is get rid of the family farms. Uh, John Kerry just recently came out and said that uh, 35% of the uh, climate change problem comes from family farming. So you know where they're heading with this. Next year, in the next legislative session, they're going to go after family farming. So it's not really the DFL, Democratic Farmer Labor. Eh, that, that's not it. Anyhow, I digress. We're going to get into that down the road. They pat, they're in the process of passing a, uh, an omnibus Omnibus, omnibus bill, which is like seafood stew on public safety. They put everything in there so nobody can really scrutinize any of it. And word around the campfire is they're taking the guardrails off about pedophilia. And uh, they're going to uh, kind of decriminalize it. And uh, people are going crazy about it. And, you know, and why would they do that? Why would they do that? Because obviously... Uh, would seem obvious to me that an older person having sexual relations with a minor would be quite abusive, was always thought to be abusive, and uh, now they don't want to do that. And this pedophilia is everywhere, and it's all the rage, and everybody's talking about it. Well, what does it do? Well, again, we're back to this humanist religion, because the number one thing they want to do is get rid of any faith. And we're going to talk about more and more where this humanism comes from. I'm going to read two Bible quotes to kind of frame out this pedophilia issue. This is from Matthew. Look it up, Matthew 8.3. 
I'm going to ask you to look it up because, again, you have to check it out for yourself. Truly, I tell you, unless you change or become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, which would seem to me to indicate that when sexual relations go bad between adults, one person can be like a little child and get abused. That's how extreme I, in my thinking to share with you. Matthew 18.6, But whosoever shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, because little children have a natural connection to the spiritual world. But whosoever shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it would be better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. So what uh, is in the Bible, and words attributed to Jesus Christ, is that if you offend a child, it would be better if you were thrown into the sea attached to a rock, other than the penalty that's going to come to you. So if you want to start reversing things, and remember my theory of Democrat Party policy is it reverses everything that's associated with the Judeo-Christian tradition, there's a guardrail, don't rape children. It was always there in my lifetime. Oh, now it's going to be okay. Check out the real situation for yourself. You've got to do your own homework. I've done mine. I've seen it for myself. I know how devastating this is when minors are uh, sexually abused by, by adults. It's, it's a terrible thing, and it leads to a lifetime of suffering for those children as they grow. So what are they doing here besides reversing uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition? Well, they're just absolutely demoralizing anybody who would oppose them. I mean, they have complete control of the, of the government. And I had another one of my uh, friends and in, in activists call me, and she was just completely frustrated. She was just ready to give up. Because, you know, she's recognizing that uh, the Republican Party here in Minnesota is completely feckless. Well, this is her words, completely ineffective, disorganized, unwilling to deal with the real issues. She even intimated to me that she felt from the way this bill was being passed through that the Republican Party was in on it because there was no real effort to oppose it. What she was implying was, was that the Republican Party was supporting an end to the criminalization of pedophilia. And I said, well, I don't know that I can go that far because I don't have any 8 by 10 glossies. But she went that far. She's been a tireless worker defending the uh, rights and the safety of children. And she just, you know, thinks the party is in on it. And well, they may be. That reminds me of another one of my activist friends who's really focused on the election integrity issue. And uh, he, he, he sees that the, the party's in on it. That's why the party's not taking effective uh, measures to uh, bring to the public's attention the issues that are surrounding, you know, the elections. What I'm trying to bring out is, is that uh, in politics and why President Washington was opposed to a party system, when you get partisanship, People lose the idea of community well-being and the importance of working together for the good and health of the American citizen and just get into winning. They get very Darwinist. 
they lose the spiritual attachment to our founding documents and become embroiled in just kicking the hell out of the other side. And um, that's where we're at today. Uh, we're, we're living this uh, throughout our entire country. And that's why I'm, I'm going to end with a, an, an encouragement and a, a plea for us to think about the well-being of the American citizen. Uh, clearly, the Democrat Party, in every way, shape, and form, is out to destroy its opposition. This is not in harmony uh, with a robust and well-functioning two-party system where we're going to have thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. We're going to come up with a better idea through dialogue. I mean, we don't even speak to each other with uh, respectful tones anymore. I invite anybody who doesn't, disagree, who doesn't agree with me to come on here, and we'll sit down and we'll talk through things, and I'll listen very attentively because I might learn something. In fact, I hope to learn something. Because through dialogue, we're going to reach a higher, a high, I don't even want to say higher, we're going, to, we're going to reach a more efficient and effective way of enhancing people's well-being. First, the people in our neighborhood, then the people in our district, then the people in our state, the people in our country, the people of the world. We all are striving for well-being. And if we're not, we're really misled. Because without well-being, we're just not effective. We're just going to be dependent on a system. And isn't that what the system wants? Think about this. What does the Democrat do? Great image, but their policies lead to dependency and unwellness. So if we have a system that 60% of the American citizens have chronic disease, it's going great. Perfecto. Perfecto mundo. But, you know, I, I said in the last podcast, one of the areas where there's broad bipartisan agreement, since John McCain gave the thumbs down like a Roman emperor to President Trump's attempt to overturn Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, uh, we've had this broad bipartisan agreement such that health care is a $1.6 trillion bipartisan funding. $1.6 trillion. Think of that count room again. Going into a for-profit system of health care for all. You know, a bigger scam. I mean, there are bigger scams, I'm sure, if I think about it. But that's got to be in the top five. That's got to be in the... Like nuclear weapons make me safe. That's another scam. You know, we're living in the world of scams, the world of BS. I, I, again, I was listening to Royce White last night, and he, he, he referenced Bill Casey, former director of the CIA. When he was director of the CIA, our disinformation plan will be complete, will be complete when everything the American citizens believe is a lie. That's our leadership. So we're spending all this money in pursuit of safety, and we're living on the verge of nuclear war. There's a scam. Think of the count room. We're spending $1.6 trillion as a people. My tax money, your tax money. Are you taxed? Do you pay taxes? Have you paid taxes? How do you feel about it? $1.6 trillion on a system that generates a 60% incidence of chronic disease that must be managed 
by the quote-unquote healthcare system. I think we need a well-being system. I think we could spend a lot less money on health care, alleged health care, which is really chronic disease management in a giant industry. If we really taught the American people, we taught ourselves, taught our children how to be well. Oh, now we're into the education system. Another giant uh, exercise in making people stupid. Now, I'm old enough to watch people get dumb. Because I remember what it was like when I went to school, and I got kids in school now, and boy, you want to talk about water running downhill. So here's where we're at. It's so bad. If we survive this, it can only go up. We can only improve. We just need to get some basic ideas about well-being, about taking responsibility for our own personal well-being, I bet you that saved a trillion dollars a year if we did that. If we took personal responsibility for our well-being, and what would that involve? Eating healthy food and taking a walk every day. Sounds really onerous, doesn't it? That's all it would take. We'd save a trillion. Deconstructing our empire, which is terrorizing people all over the world, that'd probably save uh, another half a trillion. Oh! We got a balanced budget, just like that. We don't have to go broke. We can start to care one for the other, talk one to another. The core, the linchpin of turning this around is our personal responsibility for our own well-being because that will start to end our dependence on a system that is meant to entrap us. The Democrat promotes policies that create dependence and unwellness. I want to promote policies that create human well-being and interdependence. That's the choice. Let's get this simple, and let's get going with the new politics of well-being, a new politics of well-being. And on that note, I want to thank you for joining me. I'm trying to do a better job every time. I look forward to your feedback. Uh, I love doing this with you. I'm, I'm looking forward to more dialogue predicated on one request. Please spread this out. If we're going to help people get well, we're going to have to talk one to another about what? Human well-being. Please, let's make this the center of our dialogue. It's going to make a lot of other issues fade away. Hard to hate people if you're interested in well-being because hate and wellness don't go together. On that note, I wish you well, and I look forward to seeing you soon again. Thank you very much for joining.